Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Sarah Hall is the author of Burnt Coat, a novel. Sarah was born in 1974 in Cumbria, England, and received a master's in letters in creative writing from Scotland's St. Andrews University, and has published four novels. Hawswater won the Commonwealth Writers Prize as the overall winner and best first novel, and a Society of Authors Betty Trask Award. The Electric Michelangelo was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the Commonwealth Writers Prize, Eurasia Region, and the Prix Femina Etranger, and was longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Daughters of the North won the 2006-07 John Llewellyn Reese Prize and the James Tripty Jr. Award and was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction. How to Paint a Dead Man was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Portico Prize for Fiction. In 2013, Sarah was named one of Granta's Best Young British Novelists, a prize awarded every 10 years, and she won the BBC National Short Story Award and the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Burnt Coat. Thank you for having me. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about what your book is about? Yeah, so it was a response to the pandemic, but it is not a pandemic book. I wouldn't categorize it that way. But the main character is a sculptor. Her name is Edith. She has reached the end of her life and she's looking back over it and recalling the incidents and the relationships that were very important and that formed her both as a person and as an artist. And one of the main incidents is a pandemic. So we do have a bit of that in it. I feel like I need to put a disclaimer up <laughs> for those not yet willing to, you know, undertake some lockdown fiction. But it's really about how you become resilient through very difficult and trying circumstances, through trauma, the things that make you stronger, that, you know, the kind of wisdoms that you might achieve along the way if they're even possible. And for me as a writer, it was just a way, I think, of responding to and reconciling myself with this very strange thing that we were all going through nothing like it has happened in my lifetime really and I just wanted to tackle it and, and I assumed the readers were wanting to to tackle it somehow so yeah it's a, it's a strange book <laughs> <laughs> 
I wouldn't say strange. I found it very powerful. And I haven't stopped thinking about the one scene where Edith's mom, what is her name again? I'm sorry. This is my biggest. Naomi, yeah. Naomi, of course. Right. Of course, because she has to teach her how to say it. So when Naomi ends up having her, what's the medical word, aneurysm or what was Mm -hmm. the the aneurysm? That's right. how she just got more and more tired over the course of that day and how she sat down saying she has this terrible headache because, of course, I'm like a total hypochondriac and I'm like, how would I know if I had that? <laughs> like, yeah. And how she's sitting there and holding her head and then it just so quickly, you know, devolves into what it becomes and that and the surgery they have to do to save her and the implications of what it means to be the child of someone whose identity is somehow really not lost as somebody tells her in the book, but so changed and how her loyalty persisted nonetheless, right? She still wants to yeah. tie her, you know, what hitch her ride to that, whatever that expression is. You know, she doesn't want to leave her mother, even yeah. if she's not the mother that she had grown up with. Exactly. It's a very strange kind of primal thing, isn't it? And I suppose being a mother myself, that that's one of the main anxieties, isn't it? That you're going to go down with something, you'll be completely incapacitated. How will I look after my child or children? How will how will we kind of survive those circumstances if, if they happen to me, if they happen to us? And I am a single parent. So, you know, those anxieties are quite large in life for me. And I think I wanted to really test them to a kind of an extreme boundary in the in the novel uh so things yeah that they're really pushed to the kind of furthest ramifications of what it might mean to be in a partnership as a a mother and a daughter here but as a child and a parent and the idea that the relationship is two-way traffic you know I like this idea about parenting anyway that it's not all top down yes of course we're here to look after our children and to teach them and ensure their safety and their upbringing is okay but also we learn a lot from from them and in some ways they help us too so that of course is is the nature of Edith and Naomi's relationship fundamentally they they're codependent I wouldn't say in a bad way at all I would say in just a survivalist way basically so true especially when you showed them sort of similar life stages, like when they were reading at the same level and they were kind of going through it together because of Naomi's impaired cognition after mm-hmm. her surgery and one of the lines that really stuck with me most was how, you know, Edith wanted to stay by her side because she still smelled the same. Yeah, exactly. And that's just like, oh my gosh, it like brought tears to my eyes because, you know, we could go through so much and yet fundamentally you're the same person, right? You still feel and touch and smell the same. And what does it mean to really be there for your kids and not be there? I don't know. Right, exactly. And identity is a very strange thing, isn't it? Because it's mutable so it will change across the course of a lifetime and there are certain things which might accelerate a very difficult and traumatic change like illness or like an accident and it's at those moments when I suppose love is really tested and of course you know the love that children have for family members is it's sort of hardwired really in some ways there's not much that you could do to alter it so I like that idea too that you know, even though Naomi might not recognize herself as a mother anymore for a certain period of time, and she might not have all the responses and the emotional register that she previously had, there is still something down there in her too that is activated at certain moments when she needs to defend her daughter or keep the two of them together. Yeah, and I I suppose I like the idea that there is something very unshakable uh, and indestructible about the two of them. And of course, Edith, in her artistic career, she's, she's exploring 
this idea of destruction and resilience anyway because of the nature of the technique she uses which is this burnt wood burning the surface of wood to make it waterproof more resilient and there is something about her whole life that where she's trying to find the kind of key to her operating keys I suppose and that's one of them the idea that you know you are damaged in some ways but that that's not necessarily a layer that leaves you a victim or less strong. It's something that might actually finally, you know, build build you up a level, make you make you make you harder in a good way. And then I was sort of annoyed, maybe annoyed's the wrong word, but I was really upset with the dad for abandoning the whole situation and for getting almost irritated himself. I mean, I understand I mean, I can't put I shouldn't say I understand how he feels. I haven't been in the situation, but you put us in the situation very effectively. So <laughs> you could see why it was so hard for him, right? With his wife becoming a completely different person. Essentially, he has two dependents all of a sudden. And, you know, you, you really capture that in the one moment where he was, he's like, you are not, you know, what are you doing? Like, you're not who I married. This is, you're not the same mm. woman. And yet he shouldn't have left no, no, I agree. And uh, and that's that terrible thing that, you know, I've witnessed it quite a few times now, the fact that women seem able to accommodate these changes in a partner and, and, and care for them. And perhaps society's brought us up a little bit more that way, where I, I don't know that we're naturally gifted with more empathy, but I certainly think everything is stacked towards women caring for men, especially if they go through difficult circumstances. So I've always been fascinated with the equation when it's the other way around. I did write a short story called Mrs. Fox, where a man's wife turns into a fox and he loves her nevertheless. You know, <laughs> it felt almost subversive writing that story, you know, the fact that he sticks with her and as her carer and everything else. But in this, in this novel, certainly Edith is put into the position where she has to be a carer and it's very uncomfortable for her. And there is there is this kind of presiding notion of, of abandonment and the absent father. And weirdly, you know, the second person, lots of it's written in the second person. So this address to you, which begins as Edith addressing her, her lover, Hallett, and remembering the times they were together. But the you address switches to something else in the end. It's her relationship with mortality and death and having to reconcile herself with the fact that that's always been in her life because not only did her mother survive this terrible aneurysm, she was left with another weakened blood vessel, which at any point might go. So to live with the shadow of death is a very big thing for Edith. And it's something that she negotiates her whole life. And of course we all do to various degrees and it's, it comes forward sometimes and it retreats at other times, but really she's parented by her mother and death. That's the premise of the novel. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also really cheery and full of sex. So, you know, it's it's not such a grim read. (laughs) So what is it like when you're writing this? And you said you're, you know, you have a daughter, you're a single mom, you're working on this during the pandemic. How do you, did it help you to write this? Did it make you, like, did you turn off your computer? I'm assuming you're on a computer, but like, could you get up from your chair and feel, would you feel lighter and better or would it bring you down? What was the experience like? It felt good to be writing something for a number of different reasons. I think I was feeling very productive at a time when we were all being halted. And that was a real push. You know, I was getting up at 5am to do it because I had to homeschool my daughter afterwards. So there was something quite belligerent in me that activated. But also, I keep talking about my upbringing, which was in the rural north uh, at a time when 
kind of catastrophes would happen, we'd be snowed in quite often, things like that. And there was that feeling sometimes that, oh, big thing's happening. What are we going to do? Everybody get to work, pick up a shovel, you know. And I, I felt like that switched on in me again the first day of the lockdown here in the UK in March 2020. Just that trigger of, right, you've got to do something. There's not much you can do. Like, you're not an emergency worker. You can't go out there. And so that's what I did. But I was... I, and it's funny that you say working on a computer because I was actually writing in these little exercise books. See, I, I should have assumed. Books. No, but ordinarily I would have been working on a computer, but I kind of squirreled myself away into the smallest room in the house. <laughs> People have likened giving birth at home to this. You, know, you go and find the smallest safe space and there you are going through this tremendously, you know, what's the word? Effortful <laughs> thing. So that's how it happened initially. And, and I don't know what it was. It was a... I don't know, it's almost like a childlike response. Why was I writing in an exercise book? I type things up straight away to a laptop. That's how I work. Anyway, so I found myself in this strange position. And perhaps it was about comforting myself as well, trying to find a way through, trying to find like a companionship with the reader or who I imagined the reader might be, which is quite hard to imagine in the early stages of writing. But there's there's always the sense of, okay, no, this is this is us, here we are. You know, even if there's a set of characters and there's me writing, it's... It's who we are. What are we? What are we asking at this point? You know, we might not get any answers, but what are we asking? Are we going to be okay? What's this? What's this pandemic going to mean for us? What's this illness going to mean if if it's contracted? You know, because at that point there were no vaccines. We didn't know the financial implications. Really, things were not set up to accommodate what was going on. So there was a lot of uncertainty and fear. And I think, strangely, those may be circumstances under which I can work, but also. They certainly were really deep-rooted anxieties and questions that were making me want to write and ask them in book. And the book, I think, is asking those questions. It's, you know, what use am I? What use is art in this in this difficult time? How do we see around the edges of this? So the pandemic in the novel is not the pandemic that we were going through. Mine was imagined very differently and perhaps amplifies some of the aspects in order to really inquire, you know, how we respond to those things. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just a coping mechanism. Very simple. Okay, we can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life360. Visit life360.com 
or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Well, it's pretty awesome to have it be a whole novel. I mean, a lot of people just, you know, baked banana bread and like, here you go, you know. <laughs> you have well. a very moving, I know you said it was, what did you say, weird or something, but, you know, th- although parts of it were dark, it's 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 hopeful in a way, really, right? It's inspiring the bonds of love on and relationships and, you know, yeah, that we can get through so. anything, which is true, right? The time passed, here we all are, yeah. whatever comes next, but... No, that's right. That's right. And I, 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 you know, I enjoy writing. I wouldn't really categorize them as strong women. I would just see lots of my female characters as, as capable and, and, and working and doing the things that women do. But I like that Edith was a successful artist and she was working in an area where there was a kind of national obligation. So she's a sculptor and in the novel, she's been charged with creating this memorial to the dead in the pandemic, which is a really big deal. And, you know, we're in times when we're really thinking about memorials and how we reflect these big events and and what art can do to help commemorate, if not console. So, yeah, she's she's a pretty tough character, but on the one hand, she's very vulnerable as well. So I think in some ways she was just, it's just an every woman, if such a thing exists. And how did you begin writing? Like, how did you know this is something that you love to do? I think it's always just been a way for me to express myself in the best way that I can. So I've become more verbally able over the years, <laughs> but that's that's not where I feel like my strengths lie. You know, I think when I have a pen in my hand or I'm clicking away, then something happens. And I suppose it's like, I've always likened it to music. I feel more like a composer in some way or a maker because the language is very important the sound of the words is very important it's possibly having started out as a poet there's a sense of essence that I'm trying to get at with which words are being used as well as you know the uh, operating keys of fiction where you're thinking about the movement of the story and characters and everything else world building there is just something about laying down words that feels bigger somehow and and like a like an expression that I could find nowhere else so it was always quite natural in some ways and then I think it was just degrees of it being formalized a bit of recognition just enjoying doing it honing my craft spending that time studying works and also working with an editor and eventually you get where you get to as a writer hopefully I'm still changing and improving I would like to think and this book did come out of nowhere, but I suspect there are things in it that have been waiting for quite a long time in me. So it was a response to a particular set of circumstances, but also there are proclivities in this book, which I've had for a long time. And this might in some way be a kind of crowning of those aspects that I've always been working towards, you know, the thinking about a disruption of identity, thinking about landscape, thinking about you know, political power, all those things, feminism, they all kind of come together in this book, art, sexuality, sensuality. The one thing I've always been interested in is a kind of sensuality on the page and a sensuality in the world. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's a short novel. It's it's of its time, but there's something about it, I think. It's just been waiting in the wings for 20 years. 
especially that first line it arrived and it, it was it arrived on on the day almost but you know the, the idea of those who tell stories survive as a as a first sentence it sort of set up the whole novel and I think that's something that has been being constructed in me for quite some time interesting there is something to that sort of forever legacy of leaving behind your your words on the page in a way that nothing else no photograph no nothing no memory can encapsulate so right and the act of storytelling and how important it is for humans I think why do we do it you know why is it important what does it give us I think about this stuff a lot too (laughs) (laughs) spend too much time thinking about storytelling (laughs) so when you're what types of books do you like to read and do you like to read while you're writing or do you kind of put it on hold? I do. I put it on hold to a degree. So just this novel, for example, and perhaps it was the state of the nation, the state of the globe. I was reading a lot of poetry and that might have been because I, the work itself was, was coming in quite an intense way. So handling prose kind of put me off reading prose just while it was being written. That's not always the case. I can still read fiction. But I was writing, I was, sorry, I was reading a lot of poetry partly because a friend of mine was really struggling in lockdown. So I was trying to send her a poem a day just to, as a kind of little, you know, talismanic thing for the day. And it was great because it meant that I could go back through all these collections that I love, my favourite poets, and and just pull out, you know, the best of kind of thing. It was really nice. And that in some ways, I think, helped me too. And then when the drafting of this novel was done, I turned back to fiction that in some ways doesn't console me, but again, gives me company. So books that feel to me to be extraordinary and extraordinarily well-written and dealing with extraordinary events. So things like The Bintner's Luck by Elizabeth Knox, you know, a winemaker being visited by an angel once a year. I mean, it's outlandish, shouldn't really work, but it does. It's extraordinary and brilliantly written. So I reread that and I reread some James Salter and I was rereading poetry, uh, just all the things that I knew to be very solid, brilliant pieces of art that I could kind of lean on and think, oh yeah, okay, well, people did that and that's great. You know, if it all goes to shit and hell now, which it probably (laughs) will, at least we have these brilliant things here and I'll enjoy them. So that was, that was how I tackled it. So just as a mom, when you go down that rabbit hole of worry because you know I do this quite often myself when you worry about what would happen like what would happen what happens to my kids if something happens to me what how do you handle that like what do you tell yourself how do you get through those moments oh yeah I mean it's tough isn't it I I used to try and think because again I was brought up in a very rural environment (laughs) I would always think what would be happening if we were living in the wild if we were animals you know by the age of six could she like get into tins if she needed to could she open a can and survive <laughs> I was like lying prostate in the corner somewhere prostrate even in the corner somewhere <laughs> so I used to try and think okay at what point are little human beings able to kind of pick berries and drink stream water and be okay and that doesn't help I mean that doesn't really help you know I'm not sure I think it's just living with the the knowledge that you love a being so much that were something awful to happen it it would be the end of you too that's what I think I mean hopefully there are enough people around in a community of love that you know humans get looked after I've just recently relocated to a very very warm beautiful lovely town in the north of England and my daughter and I've been very well looked after since we moved and so that's nice to think yeah you know what 
so many decent people, so much love. They will be reaching in and they will be taken care of. But it's almost, it's to me, it's almost inconceivable. I can't get my head around the idea of, of not looking after this little person that I'm charged with looking after. It's, it's, I don't know if there's any rational way out of that. And I think in some ways that's okay because those instincts are good. You know, they'll, they'll really get you up off the floor. If you've both got norovirus, you know, you're going to have to get up and deal with it because, you know, you just do. And so you, I think I read it as positive as well. You know, I try and turn the kind of anxiety into something positive and think, yeah, that's what makes women really tough, especially just get up and do it and help each other. I love that. Okay. So just two last questions. Are you working on anything else now? And what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Ooh, yeah. I'm always generally thinking over something and I have started a little book. Not sure what it's going to be. I was working on a novel before Burnt Coat came along. I mean, Burnt Coat really just shoved the other book out of the way. I'm like, no, 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 my turn, you know. So I might go back to that. And I have been thinking about it, but I've also started something new. And I've always got short stories kind of hovering around, you know, ideas for them and, and note making on them. What would I... Yeah, what would I advise to aspiring writers? Well, part of me wants to say read a lot and read a lot of good stuff. But then I also think in the end, I don't know how necessary that is. I've seen writers come through who are brilliant and not well read. I would consider that to be a perfectly legitimate road as well. I think sometimes people just have something in them and they can do it and they can communicate that way. So while it's helpful for learning about craft and technique, you know, especially with short stories, to read around and I wouldn't say don't read I would also say just have faith in the kind of voices of you and that you're being a conduit for and of and I don't know throw the rule book out I don't I've never really held to the notion that you know by page 10 something has to happen and you know I know there are writers that work very successfully that way but I I don't I don't see things that way at all I think being idiosyncratic is is good better in some ways than trying to follow anything else and be authentic I guess and being authentic doesn't mean just writing about you I really do believe that the imagination is it's it's not an organ but I often talk about it like an organ in the human body and it's the most powerful one you know you might have a good heart for running marathons but your imagination is something else completely and the more you use it the more I think it works and gets stronger so just think of it that way think you know you've got your heart you've got your liver you've got lungs you've got an imagination that's all you need I love that (laughs) thank you Sarah this has been so nice I hope your daughter feels better and thank you very much taking the time today and yeah you're very special I feel like you're from like (laughs) another time you know like (laughs) I, I mean, well, England is. We're going yeah. back to the 1950s with this, you know, this government. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyway. All right. Well, I'm so pleased our paths have crossed and wishing you all the best. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a Thank great you. day. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 